Well, we've been going through the book of um, Corinthians, and on Sunday, um, we studied uh, verses 1 through 16. We stopped there and then went to chapter 8 and did chapter 8, and we did not go verse by verse from verse 17 through the rest of the chapter 40, and that is our goal this evening. And um, after that, I have a little special surprise for you from Curtis Bowers. And um, I promise that all of, all of this will be gotten in um, by 8 o'clock. All right, maybe one or two minutes after 8. But uh, our goal today is to finish up and, um, and be true, true to um, going chapter by chapter and verse by verse. But with, instead of jumping right in, let's um, refresh our memories just a little bit about um, the book of Corinthians. It is unique in that it was totally, totally pagan. Um, Paul founded the church in Corinth on his second missionary journey. The year was 51, 52 AD. Um, they had never had any experience. It was the um, wealthiest city during Paul's day. And that's primarily because of um, uh, the ports that they had. It was a large city, 700,000 people, two-thirds of which were slaves. And it, was, it, it had a reputation um, as, as being very, very pagan, especially when it came to the worship of Aphrodite. And um, the whole town was pretty much given over to sexual immorality because the, the worship of Aphrodite uh, in Corinth is in ruins today, but the temple was actually um, on a high mount. And basically, the way they worshipped Aphrodite is they had 1,000... Uh, temple prostitutes. And so this was daily lifestyle. This is what they grew up with. This is what they knew. And now to come in and have Paul, especially in chapter seven, talk about the principles of the married life, principles for the married believer, and um, uh, was actually very, very uh, strange uh, for them because of their promiscuity. And um, uh, this was just a part of of their lifestyle. So as he begins um, in chapter 7, he deals with a subject from a biblical perspective of what it means to be a Christian and being married in a pagan culture. And for many of them... um, the, the talk about being being celibate or being sexually pure was a very, very foreign concept to them. Matter of fact, just to refresh your memory, just go back to chapter five and remember this would have been the typical feeling in uh, the church that Paul had planted. He says, it's actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality, 
as not even named among the Gentiles, that a man had his father's wife. And you are puffed up about it and have not rather mourned. And he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, I've already judged the matter as if I was there concerning him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan that this, for this, and pray for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Well, that's telling us a lot. Here's a guy in church having an affair in verse one um, with his... Uh, his father's wife, and um, everybody knew about it, but it was no big deal because of the culture, again, in which they lived. And so Paul is basically saying, this guy isn't saved, kick him out. And it might be the best thing you can do and pray for the destruction of his flesh so his soul will be saved. So he was um, not saved, the good news is when we get to Second Corinthians chapter 5, he's going to come back and say, remember that letter that I wrote and I sounded kind of tough about it, kicking this guy out and, and praying that his flesh would be destroyed? He said, I had no pleasure in having to write that letter, none whatsoever. Don't like doing it, but it had to be done. Basically, he was saying it was the most loving thing we could do. Well, the guy repented. And now Paul writes to him and says, I want you to bring that guy back in. Uh, he found out what it's like not to be uh, in fellowship, came to the end of himself, so to speak, and he got things right. He goes on to say, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? By you guys being indifferent to the actions of this one man, uh, he's comparing it to, don't you know, a little leaven leavens a whole lump. And um, instead of dealing with it. So he says, purge it out. And uh, we don't want that mentality that it's okay um, to have uh, this sort of sexual immorality in the church. Now, having said that, let me clarify. We're talking about a lifestyle here with this particular individual that everybody knew. I'm not talking about something that happened to King David when he had an affair with Bathsheba. Uh, that was a completely different situation. David was confronted, he repented, there were consequences. Um, the child that was born, um, the Lord took him, and, um, but David was forgiven. So, the difference here was this was ongoing and it was having an effect on the church. All right, now Paul's got to tell them about what it's like to have a Christian marriage, a whole new concept. So in the first nine verses, we went through this verse by verse, principles for the married life. And um, it talks about um, having, you know, being married to one, one person and um, not withholding uh, each other from one another. Um, um, 
he he recognizes that uh, God created men and women with hormones, and they have natural um, desires that are to be fulfilled in marriage, so don't withhold yourself from one another. That's basically the first nine verses. He says, I wish you guys had the gift that I did. Um, In verse seven, I wish you all were even as I myself, and Paul had the gift of uh, what we would call being celibate. He was able to um, have control over these passions so that he could serve the more so he could serve the Lord uh, uh, strong, more strongly. But in verse nine, if you cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So that would have been the first nine verses. Verses 10 through 16, we have the principles um, for a Christian marriage, and that is that once you're married, you're married. It goes on to tell us that a wife is not to depart from her husband. And um, then he gives instructions that even though she's not supposed to, what if she does anyway? Well, he goes on and gives his advice. He said, um, God's called the other person who wants to stay in a relationship, he's called you to peace, so he doesn't want a guilt trip put on that person, but to treat the one who is left as a non-believer. Why as a non-believer? Because a woman is not to depart from her husband. And she did anyway. And then uh, basically that brought us up to verse 16. So as we look at verse 17, this first verse tonight, um, we have but as God. Now because we're jumping into the middle of this chapter, I need to point out that it is referring to what we've just read in the first 16 verses. So let's look at verse 17. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. So And so I ordained in all the churches. Now in context here, he is explaining that some people have this gift like he had. Some people don't. And... In verse 17, it is actually responding to what we've read in the first 16 verses. Um, let, let each one, as the Lord has called him. Well, has he called them to be celibate? Or has he called them to be marriage? And that's basically the idea that Paul is teaching um, these <laughs> brand new um, pagan believers that are learning what it's like to be a Christian. And so 17 goes back to verse 16. Uh, They are not to walk out of their marriage after they have heard and received the gospel, Um, but let it be to whatever gift the Lord has given you. The Lord has given some people the gift of being single. Uh, For most, I would say not. All right, verse 18. Was anyone called while circumcised? Well, let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. I'm going to stop. Well, let's do 19 too. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. 
but keeping the commandments of God is what's written. Um, Gentiles here, it says if you're a Gentile, then um, was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. That would be to the Jew. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? That would be a Gentile. Well, then don't let him become circumcised as a Jew would be. Um, And I'm going to do a little sidetrack here. I want to address a popular doctrine that's out there today. It's called the Hebrews Roots Movement. How many of you have heard of the Hebrews Movement? Okay, some of you haven't. So it's very popular today. Um, And the idea, and what should put it to rest, is the verse that we just read right here. How were you called? Were you a Gentile? Then don't take on being and and uh, keeping the traditions of a Jewish believer. Now remember, all of the early church were Jews, and so they would have been circumcised, and they were all completely blown away when Cornelius, a Gentile, was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they, could, they said, we can't believe it. God's saving Gentiles. Unbelievable. And yet today, there is a movement. Um, I, pulled, I had this pulled off the internet today just so I could um, give a paragraph or two for those of you who, who are not aware of it. We have it here in the valley. Um, we have um, at least one or two churches that I'm aware of that hold to and teach Uh, the Hebrew Roots Movement. And I'm just quoting now from something we took off the internet. Although there are many different and diverse Hebrew Roots assemblies with variations in their teachings, they all adhere to a common emphasis on recovering the original Jewishness of Christianity. Their assumption is that the church has lost its Jewish roots and is unaware that Jesus and his disciples were Jews living in obedience to the Torah. I would interject Acts chapter 15 where this became a big issue and they had to have their first council meeting to decide what requirements do we put on Gentiles now that they're saved. So if you're taking notes, just jot down Acts 15. For the most part, those involved advocate the need for every believer to walk a Torah-observant life. This means that the ordinances of the Mosaic Covenant must be central focus in the lifestyle of believers today as it was with the Old Testament Jews of Israel. Keeping the Torah included keeping the Sabbath. This is one of their main things, is that um, they keep the Sabbath uh, law. And at this point, I would throw in a scripture, Paul would later go on and teach, if you're gonna try to keep even one part of the law, then you have to keep all of it. So you either get one of it right, and if you get the one right, that means you gotta get all the rest of it right too. And so here they're keeping it and saying, well, we got it's part of the law, and you need to keep the Sabbath. Okay, fine, that's what you believe, but if you believe that, 
know that there's 613 other things that you gotta have a spot on right perfect. And they, of course, no man could do it. Jesus told the Jews, you yourself could even keep, keep the law. Why are you trying to impose it upon the Gentiles? So, um, having said that, um, I like one of my favorite scriptures is Jesus says, don't think that I've come to destroy the law. And let me just stop and say what I'm gonna say next. Jesus is the only one who can complete the rest of this sentence. Don't think that I've come to destroy the law. I haven't come to destroy it. I've come to fulfill it. What does that mean? That means he kept every one of the 613 commandments. He fulfilled the law, and he's the only one who has ever fulfilled the law. Good place for an amen. Okay, so it's an exercise of futility. Um, I think a lot of times people get sidetracked into different um, um, organizations or other doctrines for one reason and one reason only. They are biblically illiterate in very important parts of the Bible. And they can become susceptible when they hear something like that. Well, that's a great idea. Take the day off on a Saturday, do absolutely nothing, sounds good to me. Well, the problem is the scriptures have, have a lot to say about that. Because if you're going to keep that one, then you have to keep all of them. All right, let me go on. Uh, this means that the ordinance of the Mosaic Covenant must be the central focus in the lifestyle of believers today as it was with the Old Testament Jews of Israel. Keeping the Torah, including keeping the Sabbath on the seventh day of the week, celebrating the Jewish feasts and festivals, keeping the dietary laws, avoiding um, paganism of Christianity such as Christmas and Easter, etc., and learning to understand the scriptures from a Hebrew mindset. They teach that Gentile Christians have been grafted into Israel, which is true. And this is one reason every born-again believer in Jesus the Messiah is to participate in these observances. That is not true. So part of what they just said is true. We have been grafted into the root. But the context there is be careful how you treat Jewish people when it comes to anti-Semitism in the, in, the, in the case of Reformed theology. Well, God rejected you guys. And uh, he's given all, all of his promises to the church. So we call that replacement theology. And there's sort of a snooty attitude that goes along with it. And the Lord is saying, be careful, church. Um, if Israel can be put aside, I can put the church, church aside too. So, yes, you were grafted into the main root, and you were just a branch of it. So don't be high-minded or cocky about it is the idea. All right, um, they teach that Gentile Christians have been grafted in. We already covered that. Um, Jesus... The Messiah is to participate in these observances. It is expressed that doing this is not required out of legalistic bondage, but out of a heart of love and obedience, which I disagree with. However, they teach that to live a life that pleases God, this Torah observant walk must be part of that 
new life. And then they close it with a cute little phrase, Jewishness is next to godliness. I think they just threw it in there for <laughs> for who knows why. But um, let's go back to verse 18 and read it again. And this is going to be the main, it's going to be one main point that we're going to get out of these verses tonight that I'll repeat several times. And here's one of them, verse 18. Was anyone called while circumcised, being Jewish? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Now here's the verse. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. So you can be a saved, born-again believer. And don't be concerned about it if that's how where you were when you were called. But this one verse, um, a lot of young Christians wrestle with, and that's this. I know I did. And um, being a free spirit and, and reading the scriptures and talking about um, giving your life to Jesus and, and uh, whatever he wants you to do, you know, we're supposed to, we're supposed to do that. And I thought, if I give my life to Jesus, he might send me off to Africa or someplace like that. And I don't think I really want to go to Africa right after I get saved. Well, if I would have known this scripture right here, it says, what were you doing when you got saved? What was your job? You work at a grocery store? Were you a carpenter? What was your trade? Paul is saying right here, whatever it is when you got saved, stay in that calling. Now, that's the main point of our study tonight. And it should be freeing. It should be freeing. Because there are a lot of people when they get saved, um, they go, well, what will the Lord call me to do? He might ask me to do something that I might not really want to do. The scripture addresses it. He goes on to say, for in verse 22, for he who is called in the Lord... While a, while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. Either way, your life belongs to the Lord. The occupational part of it and what the Lord is telling you right now is whatever you're doing when you got saved, just keep on doing it. And be a light, salt and light, and that sphere of people that the Lord has what you involved with. Um, let me go on to say this. I understood that scripture and it was very liberating and I realized that um, I didn't have to go to Africa. My best friend, he doesn't care for the states at all. He's not happy unless he's in Africa. <laughs> and um, Yet there came a time, let's see, that would have been hmm, from 70 to hmm, 
first four years got involved with the house ministries where the Lord actually called me into ministry. And it was clear that uh, um, he was calling me into, into ministry. So let me put it in perspective. Wherever you're at, when you get saved, stay there unless the Lord calls you. The Bible says, make your calling and election sure. Does everybody understand what I just said? Make your calling and election sure. Let me just give you an example. Let's say you come to the Lord and you feel that you should be a missionary. But you're not really sure about it, but you do it anyway, okay? And so you take off and you go to Haiti and you're a missionary. Not 100%, you just like, you think it's a good idea to do it. On the other hand, um, in my case, the Lord spoke directly to me. And I was absolutely sure what he was calling me into. I had no ifs, ands, and buts about it. That's what God has called me to do. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. The reason you're to make your calling and election sure is that no matter what you do in ministry, whether it's staying at the job and just staying where you are when you get saved, or whether or not you go into a ministerial role somewhere, what you can be sure of is this. Trials are going to come. And you're going to go through times of, um, of going through the fire. And unless your calling and election is sure, and well, let me start with the other one. Let's say you, you weren't 100% persuaded that the Lord had called you. Now you're going through these fiery trials. And you're going, hmm, I didn't know this was part of um, the Christian walk. And um, all of a sudden you start second guessing your calling. Am I supposed to be doing this or not? To the person though who knows that his calling and election is sure, it's a non-issue. Yes, you're gonna go through trials. Yes, you're gonna go through fiery, burning trials. So what? Every Christian does, but the Lord has called me here, so this is where I stand. That's why the scriptures talk about making your calling and election sure. Why? Well, you don't belong to yourself anymore. So if the Lord speaks directly to you, oh, that's a, back, that's a good one, Lord. Um, yeah. Um, um, I don't know exactly the chapters and verses, so I'll just give it to you from the back of my head and talk about Gideon just for a second. This is in my notes. And Gideon was... Um, uh, treading wine in his wine press one day and and um, the Lord spoke to him and was calling him to be a leader and a ruler amongst the Jewish people. And Gideon laughed and says, you gotta be kidding, I'm the least in my family, why would you ever call me? And then it happened to him again and... Um, He said, okay, Lord, here's the deal. If this is really you that's talking to me, 
uh, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to take this lamb's fleece and I'm going to lay it outside overnight. Now, typically, if you take a lamb's fleece and you lay it outside overnight, when you get up in the morning, it's going to have dew on it, just like we have with grass. Is everybody following me? So he puts it out and he says, okay, Lord, if this is you, then um, I want you to have a dew on the, on the lamb's well, in the morning, wakes up, there's the dew. Okay, that was just a test, Lord. I want to do it again, except this time I want to switch it around. Because last night there was dew on it. Tonight I'm going to do the same thing. And what I want you to do is have no dew. How's that? Even rhymes. Uh, put the lamb's fleece out there. What should happen is there should be dew on it, but I don't want there to be dew on it, and then I will know that it's you. And we actually have Christian terminology for this. And most of you know what it is. It's called putting a fleece before the Lord. How many of you have heard of that Christianese? In other words, you got a big decision to make and you want to make sure it's the Lord. Why? Because you're, you're going to be tested. And for Gideon, um, he knew. Only God could do that. So, Lord, you got my, my life. And he put this fleece before the Lord. And the Lord answered him. And, um, uh, and he went on. And he spoke to Gideon. I'll, I'll tell you a little personal secret that, that um, how much that verse means to me. Some of you old timers have already known that. Um, what the Lord said to Gideon in his insecurity in ministry is he said, Gideon, surely I will be with you. So every Bible study that I ever give on Sunday morning, I have in one of the corners the first letter of every one of those words. But instead of surely I will be with you, Gideon, I have S, and then the rest of the letters, surely I will be with you, Dwight. And I want that encouragement. And the other one that I put on the other corner is something that is also in the scriptures where it says when you speak, Paul said he prayed that he would speak with boldness and with, with authority. And so I have this other initials on there that in this corner that says, speak as the oracle of God. In other words, when I'm standing behind here, I get me out of the way and I speak as if it was the Lord himself who's doing the speaking. Uh, Can you take that without making it look like I'm sounding all puffed up and everything? (laughs) Um, But... I'm just acknowledging, Lord, that I need that boldness and only you can do it. And so I've, I've been doing it for 40 years and every corner, I got all these notes and you can, they're there for every single one of them. I want to know that, that um, the Lord is going to be with me and I want to be able to speak with the authority of the Apostle Paul that he prayed for boldness to speak, as Paul would say, as we should speak. I don't know, good place for an amen? <laughs> amen. All right, so let's, we left off in verse, um, i got to keep an eye on the clock here. You are brought 
bought with a price, verse 23, do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the calling in which he was called. If you get nothing out of the Bible study tonight, get this. Be at peace. Unless the Lord directly comes to you and starts speaking to you about doing something, don't worry about it. The Bible says stay in the calling wherein you were to be called. And if he has anything else for you, he'll let you know. And then you can be just like Gideon and say, oh yeah? Well, let's put a couple fleeces out. Make sure this is really you and not me just thinking about it. Verse 25 tells us, 25 through 28. Now concerning the virgins, I have no commandments from the Lord. Yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Now there's an enlightening verse. And um, saying if you're single, you're going to have um, less troubles in your life than if you were married. Well, why is that so? Because all you married people out there you're sinners, and you have one sinner marrying another sinner, and that equation it can spell trouble. Let me um, uh, back this up with a parable. Turn with me to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew seven. I usually don't do a wedding without these verses. 24 to 27 is the parable of the two builders. Therefore, whoever hears these things of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Now, the rock is Jesus Christ. So, it is a picture of a believer, and it's telling us that uh, he builds his house on a rock, and then what happens? The storms of life come. And my main point here is that just because we're Christians, we are not exempt from the storms of life. Good place for an amen. All right, that's those who hear God's word and applies them practically. All right, the second person, verse 26. And everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Now, when I do a wedding, the reason I use these verses is because I want those listening and those that are getting married, I want them to realize that just because they're believers, they're not gonna go through difficult times. Go back to 1 Corinthians um, 7. Uh, If you marry, you have not sinned, And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, you will have trouble in the flesh that I would spare you. And the point is simple. Just because we're Christians, we're still gonna go through storms. But here's the good news. The Lord will see you through the storms just like he 
saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the fiery furnace. That was a fiery trial. Uh, three of them were in the fire. Nope, there were four actually. And the Lord was with them through the storm. And as a result, they made it through the, the fiery furnace. But the guys who threw them in, their life was not built on God's word. It was built upon the Babylonian teachings and principles. What happened to them? They died, throwing them in. So the, the point that Paul's making here, let's continue on. But this I say, brethren, he wants to spare you of that. But this I say, brethren, that the time is short, so that from now on even those who have wives should be as though they had none, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. Jesus would say, if you seek me first, I'm gonna take care of you. Don't worry about the things that the Gentiles worry about. What am I gonna wear? What am I gonna eat? What am I gonna do? Well, that's what Gentiles worry about. He's saying, I don't want you to worry about those things. I'll take care of you. I take care of the birds of the field. I'm well able to take care of you guys. And so here he's saying the same thing. Don't put your trust in your bank account or your 401k or whatever. Why? Because that's all gonna pass away uh, for the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be without care. Uh, he who is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married carries about the things of the world and how he may please his wife. Now, this isn't necessarily spoken in a negative context. Actually, the Bible says if you don't work, you don't eat. And um, the scriptures are clear about being sensitive to our wives as weaker vessels and make, making sure you're taking care of them. And as for the ladies, um, uh, they are to be a helpmate unto their husband. Uh, and that's clearly laid out in the scriptures. But if you're not married, those are non-issues. And what Paul is saying here is it'll free you up to serve the more Lord more freely. Then he goes out of verse 34 and says, there's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord that she may be holy, both in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world. How may she please her husband? I wonder what wants for breakfast. Hmm. Uh, I'm thinking about supper tonight. What should we have? And oh, you got all these other things going on. Nothing wrong with those things. That's what ladies think about. And um, taking care of you know, household chores, we got children, that's adding to it. Uh, This I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, uh, for what is proper that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he's behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she's past the flower of her youth, and thus it must be, let him do as he wishes, he does not sin, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity. This is um, 
the person who has, like Paul, who has the gift, is completely um, dedicated to be just focused on the Lord and the Lord's work. But he has power over his own will. we're We're talking about intimacy here. That he's able to control his own natural affections. And has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, he does well. So, then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give in marriage does even better. Paul actually goes on and say, I wish you guys all had the same gift that I did. The, the scripture closes here with uh, the principles for remarriage. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, but only in the Lord. So we have a husband and a wife who dies. What does the Bible have to say about that? Especially in Corinth with the way, the way it was. Um, um, she's at liberty, but then he makes the distinction, but only in the Lord. Uh, we have the scripture, we're not to be unequally yoked with a non-believer. Well, that's talking about marriage, but I, I personally think it has a lot to do if you're a businessman and the people that you hire. Last verse, but she is happier if she remains as she is according to my judgment, and I think I have the spirit of God. What do you think? You think Paul had the spirit of God? Yeah, I think he probably did. <laughs> Okay, I'll take the probably out of it. Okay? Uh, Lord, thank you for your, uh, this evening and everything, Lord, that we studied in 1 Corinthians 7 um, and the unbelievable times that we live in. You said we'd be living in perilous times. We understand that we are. Help us see it from a biblical perspective and um, help us be Bereans and you show us what to do and what our part should be in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.